Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. James, welcome. Good afternoon, well, good morning actually. Get going, <laughs> Luck on Sunday. Arc Day, fantastic Sunday, isn't it? Probably the best day's racing of the, of the whole year for me. Such a shame the rain forecast to be torrential. I've seen a few videos of staff that are at Longchamp earlier this morning and it is absolutely chucking it down. From a, from a trainer's perspective now, you've got your, your stable star running on Arc Day. Never mind whether it's the Outdoor Trail for any of the other races. This is what John Gosden famously described on Champions Day last year as specialist's ground. You, you, you almost throw out calculations as to whether the horse has got soft ground form, don't you? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of survival of the fittest. Yes, it, it is indeed. The only thing is, you do kind of know in October on Arc Day that you're likely to get this kind of ground. So you have prepared, like Tiona, she's not even travelled across for the Arc because they knew the ground wasn't going to suit. So when you get to the end of the season, you kind of pray and you hope that your horse is going to act on it. Most of them, it's probably going to be their final run of the campaign if they're not going on to America or Champions Day over here. So you know what you're going to get... Your hopes sink, I think, for quite a few horses. When you see the rain come, you run, but you know that most likely you're not going to handle it. But if you have got a mudlark, your prayers have been answered. Um, has it changed the way you're, you're looking at the race? Definitely. Um, there's a few of them that Adi are in particular. Connections don't seem massively confident. Horses like Snowfall, we saw what happened on Oaks Day when the rain absolutely bucketed down and we had that 16-length success. So it's going to play to the strengths of some and not others. Hurricane Lane, he's had a tough season, but you know he's going to be going to handle the ground. But is that recent busy campaign going to catch up with him? So uh, it's a fascinating race. Tarnawa, she won a similar last year, probably plays to her strengths, even though she ran a cracker on quick ground in, in the Irish champion. So ultimately, all the horses you want to see there currently are taking part, and it's just a cracking manure. Well, in a little while, I'll be talking to James Doyle, who's got the ride on Hurricane Lane. What an amazing day for him yesterday with three group winners. I'll also be talking to William Haggis, who runs Alonka. Eight winners across the country yesterday. How about that? Oh, he's absolutely flying. I think he had 15 runners. Rain Fallonkai is certainly going to suit him because uh, he's by Alderfuggy. He will love the ground. He's been outpaced a little bit by Hurricane Lane and the Grand Prix de Paris. And obviously in the Judmont itself, where I thought he ran an absolute storm, I didn't see him running that well over a mile and a quarter on decent ground. So he's been actually backed each way at quite big prices. And, and I can see why. And if you have backed him and got the 33s, the 25s that was available in the last few days, you'll be delighted to see how well William Haggis' horse is running yesterday. Yeah, as I say, William Haggis will be on the line very shortly. But first of all, we'll take a look back at yesterday's featured Group 1 at Newmarket. This was the Kingdom of Bahrain Sun Chariot Stakes, and it went the way of Saffron Beach for Jane Chapelheim and William Buick. It's brilliantly trained, uh, this filly. I mean, they, tr they tried to have a go at the Oaks earlier in the season. It didn't quite work. And then it's a question of getting her back to peak for, for a target like this. And she fair bolted her. Oh, she did indeed. Now, uh, it's great to see a smaller yard uh, get a Group 1 winner. Jane Chabberheim, I had the pleasure of, of working with her a few years ago uh, when she had the Jim and Fitchy Hay horses and 
what Jane's very good at is getting a team around her. She's got a great team of staff, and they've done a fantastic job of this filly. Because as you mentioned, they tried the Oaks. She didn't stay, and obviously having a hard race on that kind of ground when you're a non-stayer, it can derail your season. The farmer, she wasn't quite right when she disappointed there. Nice dropping grade at Sandown where she won well under Holly Doyle. And then yesterday, she just travelled like a dream. She loves this kind of ground, loves Newmarket as well. Remember last year as a two-year-old, she was so good at Newmarket. And she never really looked in doubt of getting beaten on this occasion. She was always travelling nicely, always in the right place. And when William Buick pressed the button, she just disappeared. Yeah, what did you make of um, Mother Earth's run? Another very creditable run. To what extent do you think she was at a disadvantage where she was racing, more to the, in that right-hand group rather than rather than where Saffron Beach was? I think, to be fair, that both groups have kind of merged uh, about right. I think Saffron Beach, wherever she would have been placed on the track, she would have won. Mother Earth, she has played every dance in she this year. She's run with credit on nearly every single occasion. But I think the fact Saffron Beach had a lighter mid-season campaign, especially when things went wrong, mid-season. I mean, she was a fresher horse and she'd come back on a confidence boost and success. Can't say that about Mother Earth at uh, Ireland a few weeks ago where she had a horrible experience in, in no room. So, um, no excuses. I think the groups had merged and Saffron Beach, she deserved to get that group one. And you look how far Mother Earth yesterday has beaten No Speak Alexander. And we'll talk about that uh, Talk about that race a little bit later on in our talking points. Yeah, No Speak Alexander started wandering again towards Mother Earth trying to make a little bit of contact again. But yeah, Saffron Beach had already gone and they William Buick uh, shame to see Snow Lantern at the back of the field there. She disappointed on a, on a probably last run of the season. Dream Life, she ran an absolute cracker uh, to get a bit of black type as well, finishing third. So just, it perhaps wasn't as strong in the fact that a few disappointed at the end of the season, but uh, the win was deserved, and I think she's a moral winner. Unlucky back in May, and they got a great one. Yeah, so Saffron Beach it is that was winning for, for Jane Chapelheim. Um, as I said, eight winners yesterday for, for William Haggis. Uh, just try and give me a little perspective on that from a, from a trainer's point of view. You send out 15 runners and eight of them go and win. Well, I think you're probably always hoping when you've got that kind of number. Normally it doesn't work out. I know when we have a lot of runners, it all seems to fall apart. But they were primed to perfection. And ultimately, they were handed the ground, which at Ascot was key because that ground there was, was pretty horrendous. And um, I think it's been patient with a lot of horses that wanted this kind of ground. Uh, Dave, Obviously not yesterday, but he waited, didn't go to air when the ground was going to be too quick. And, and he's producing these horses for Champions Day and going on. And for the end of the season, for these big race targets that, that William's got lined up for his horses, that's a real boost to see him in such good form. Because a lot of yards now that have had busy seasons, their horses are just starting to fall apart. But clearly, William String, that's not the case. Yeah, not the case at all. Uh, William, good morning. Congratulations. Thanks, Nick. I mean, you sent out 15 yesterday. What did you think yesterday morning? Uh, well, I think we all thought that there were... Bits and pieces of chances, but uh, as usual, a lot of people got the wrong ones. I, mean, I know every trainer will say, oh, there's more occasions when we set a load of horses to the races and we've got high hopes and they all let us down. But, I mean, this was across more than one country and several race courses. You must have had to have eyes in the back of your head, I would have thought. Yeah, well, it was a, a bit of a strain on the staff and the ones that were left here um, yesterday morning. But that's the way it is. That's what we're all doing it for. So um, we just got stuck in and, and it worked. Which winner yesterday gave you the most satisfaction? Oh, one or two of them, actually. Um, obviously, Dubai Honor, who's really, really come good and, you know, put that Guillaume Donano run into perspective. I thought, uh, you know, there was a possibility it may have been a fluke or people could have been uh, thinking that. But actually, yesterday, he showed he was a good horse. So he's really exciting going forward. I was chuffed a bit with the two-year-old at Newmarket, Almabir. 
uh, looked a nice horse, and and also thrilled with Aldari, who who clearly loves us often. His silly trainer's been running him on fast ground in the summer, but uh, he was uh, really good and well ridden because. Um, you know, Jim, it was Jim's idea, I believe, to go up the far side, and it was clearly the right way to go. Um, the ground was pretty desperate everywhere yesterday, particularly at uh, uh, shot. But do you think Dubai Honor has got you know, more strings to his bow than just being a mudlark? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, he, he's, a, he's a pretty nice horse, and I think he'll go, we're going to run him somewhere in the autumn, whether it's Bahrain or Hong Kong or both. Um, but uh, and he will encounter quicker ground there, but I've no doubt that he goes on the fast ground. You mentioned your two-year-old maiden winner at Newmarket. Am I right in thinking that was a, a homebred of the owners who, and you trained the dam? Absolutely marvellous. Uh, Sheikh yeah. Duma's um, a very good owner to us, and he's terrific. And we had a, he bred the horse that won the first, which is also a very nice horse called Cash. And... Uh, and uh, Maureen and I didn't really go for him as a yearling, and he sold him. And we'd had the full brother who was absolutely stone useless and cost a fortune. <laughs> and so I was absolutely thrilled. This is Mufriha was a very good filly for him, a very game filly, and this is her first foal. And uh, he's a pretty nice horse, I think. And I think, uh, I think John's horse was very fancied yesterday, so we were delighted uh, uh, to win. William Haggis, who trained eight winners across two countries yesterday and seems justifiably hopeful of a big run from Alon Kerr in this afternoon's pre de Triumph, with all that rain rather equalising the chances of some of these horses, or at least that's what we assume. Yesterday, Trushan was Stradivarius' superior in the pre de Cad round. James Milman, was this just a ground issue, do you think? No, I think he's the better horse now. Stradivarius has been around the block for a fair while, and the ground, it wasn't super heavy yesterday. Uh, Stradivarius, I think, has run right up to his form from when he won the Doncaster Cup when Trushan obviously taken out because the ground was too quick. Uh, Alan King's horse, he saw out the extra half mile with ease, um, which I think was probably the slight question mark going into the race because the Cadran, as the Ascot Gold Cup, it is another unique test step stepping up for that extra half a mile. And, and the pace was quite strong early on, so he had to stay, and, and that he did. On good ground, on ground described as good, which it seems will, will never happen and the two will never meet on, who do you think would come out on top? Well, the way Alan King keeps taking him out, it does suggest that he's not going to be as effective on, on that sounder surface. Um, but, if it, but if it wasn't firm? If it wasn't firm, I'd still be with Trushan because he's the horse going forward. Um, the only slight worry, I suppose, coming into the home straight, James Doyle had to get after him a little bit and I thought we might not quite pick up and, and then he did probably 100 yards later. But um, he's improved immensely from when we saw him at Foss last as, as a young horse. He'd done well. He, he won on a tap to, uh, to Wolverhampton quite effectively. Um, so that surface isn't particularly testing. Um, we know Stradivarius. I think he's equally effective at nearly every surface. He's just getting that bit older. He ran an absolute cracker. I think there's no excuses for me. Frankie was always in the right place, tracking the right horses. Ultimately, Trushan is, is a younger star coming through. You see, here's the thing with Stradivarius. I get, that, I get why they wanted to have a, another go at a Group 1 for him. And they've got the, the Champions Day race, which, again, looks like the ground will probably go for that. So I understand why they went yesterday. But it's quite simple with him now, isn't it? He, he is still going to be capable of winning races when, when the going's on the quick side. Oh, most definitely. Yesterday, for me, he surpassed what he did in the Doncaster Cup. I don't think he actually achieved a great deal in the ratings-wise. I think yesterday he ran a better race uh, in, in a higher-class contest. 
He's probably not as good as what he was two years ago, but that's still an extremely exalted level. He retains all the enthusiasm for racing, which I think that's the important aspect when you're dealing with an entire his age. A lot of the horses mm. become unmanageable. They don't really want to do it anymore. And I think for owners, Bjorn Nilsson and trainer John Gosden, as long as he's still showing that enthusiasm on the gallops, um, for me, if I was lucky enough to have a horse like Stradivarius, you'd, you'd go again. Let's talk to James Doyle, who rode Trushan yesterday. Not only that, he rode two other group winners at Paris Longchamp. Uh, James, good morning. Morning, Nick. How are we doing? Uh, I'm very well, no doubt. Um, you had a, a, a very quiet night in preparation for a big day today on, uh, on Hurricane Lane. How bad is the weather in Paris? Well, it's, it, it's been drizzling away. Um, so we've, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, um, how much rain we've had, to be precise, but it's certainly each time I've looked out the window, it's been drizzling away right through the night. So I should imagine it's, it's going to be pretty extreme conditions, I would, I would think. And how extreme was it yesterday? Well, it was proper soft ground yesterday, I thought. Um, it's pretty testing. And, uh, I mean, it, it, we, we did get a bit, of, a, a bit of rain during racing yesterday, but not a huge amount. But um, once we had a few races and the ground opened up, it, it became, very, um, became very hard work. We're going to talk about Hurricane Lane in a moment. Let's let's discuss the winners yesterday. I mean, Trushan was dominant in the in the Prix de Cadran. You were taking over the ride. What did you what did you make of him as a as a sort of champion stayer? It was a rock solid performance. It was very impressive. Um, my my first um, sort of go on him. Obviously, unfortunately, Holly was suspended, but um, it was a very exciting ride to pick up. And I actually, felt a bit of pressure riding him. To be honest, he's not not quite got the following that Stradivarius has at this stage but he's certainly getting there and I think he, he, he's certainly going to be uh, the people's champ going forward and I think it will take a very good stayer to beat him in the future um, given his his, his soft um, liking for soft ground I guess. And was there any point in yesterday's race where you didn't think you were going to win? No to be honest it was very smooth it, um, Alan's great to ride for and you know he, did, he didn't complicate things at all he, he just said you know I'll leave it to you but it'd be just lovely to get him to drop his head and switch off early whether that's fourth or fifth or a little bit further back depending on the gallop but I felt we went an even enough tempo there was only a slight worry when when you pass the stands and you race away from the stands uh, you obviously um, sort of there's a bit of a switch back there and you go left um, to begin with and then switch back to the right it was just a little bit of a tricky moment where Frankie just lingered out for longer than I'd want him to really. And it just gave uh, the opportunity for a couple of runners to try and nip down the inside. And I, I took a little look to my right and I could see they, they, they weren't the, the sort of horses I wanted to be uh, end up behind. So I just had to switch things up a little bit and be a little bit more aggressive to go forward and make sure I held the rail and, once we did that, Stradivarius crossed in front of us and we had a target on his back and it just worked out perfect. And the other two winners you rode yesterday, um, Manobo, I thought, was a, a, a quite an interesting horse at the beginning of the season and he's certainly showing it now. And, and uh, the, the horse you, you rode for William Haggis, Dubai Honour, the trainer's been speaking very warmly of. Yes, he, I mean, Dubai Honour was very good. I mean, I, I was... He, look, he, he won a, so, a rock-solid handicap at Newmarket two starts back or three starts back now. And I just thought the race, the, the pre-Guillaume in Deauville, I, I was a bit dubious about the race because I, I just thought the early fractions I, I rode in the race and I just felt we went probably too quick up front. Mm. And it, it, 
set up for a closer. But speaking to Philip Robinson, racing manager for the owner, and um, William Haggis, they they said his last two bits of work have been pretty exceptional. So that gave us a lot of confidence, and he backed that up um, with a proper performance. You know, he it not you didn't see too many runners coming from his position yesterday, and he showed a real turn of pace up the straights and galloped out well. And in terms of of James Doyle's own season, that's a notable achievement yesterday to win three group races. That important group won the Prix du Cadre uh, and you know, two other horses for, for for outside stables, three different trainers. That takes a bit of doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's kind of a bit of a the, the Saturday. It's like a, a super Saturday in the fact that you've got Ascot, uh, Newmarket uh, and Longchamp. So it does mean that the jockeys are split around a little bit and he's able to pick up a few outside rides. And obviously, unfortunately for Holly Doyle to miss Chushan, absolutely gutted for Holly. But to show that you are there as a substitute if needed, there's so many good horses going around, yards having two in a race, that these kind of spare rides crop up. And mm. James Doyle wants to be putting his name in the hat as a, he's the jockey to go to if you need someone in these top international races. And, he, and yesterday proved he was adept. And Hurricane Lane today might put him again on, on the real big stage. Alan King's joining us on the line now, trainer of Trushan. Morning, Alan. I think he's there. I hope he's there. Morning, Alan. Are you there? I am. I can hear you. Yeah, good. We can hear you now loud and clear. Sorry about that. Um, well done yesterday with, with Trushan. How's he come out of the race? Uh, apparently fine. He's on his way back. Um, I've just spoken to Dan um, Horse for a short time ago, so hopefully he should be back um, in his stable by about 6 p.m. It was a good dominant performance yesterday. You've heard what James Doyle had to say. He was very impressed with the horse. Is that what you were expecting? Um, well... I suppose deep down you did. I mean, the one thing I wanted to make sure was that he settled. He was very free at Goodwood, but I think just all the sort of up and down and left and right Goodwood, he, he, he just got lit up. And I was conscious with the extra half mile yesterday that if he did that early on, we might just struggle to get home. But he, he settled away lovely for James and um, looks like the, the rain came at the right time for him. So, um, you know, it, it, we were delighted with him. And, and is it now all systems go for Champions Day? Well, it's only a fortnight. I mean, we'll have to see how he is. Um, I would imagine we'll give him an entry for the, um, the pre-Royal Oak, which closes on Tuesday, and, and that, that's run three weeks today. So, you know, if we, I want to go to Ascot, but if the horse is telling me he wants another week, we've, we've got the option of going back to France. And, of course, the Royal Oak is a Group 1, isn't it? Yeah, but, I mean, that's, I'm not too fussed about that, really. Just, he, he'll, I think he'll tell me, and, and Dan and Gary know him inside out, so... You know, he can have a quiet week and we'll, we'll see how he is at the weekend. But as I say, ask it would be the preference, but we have a backup plan if we need it. So, as far as the winter and next season are concerned, will it be more of the same? Is there any, any temptation to ever put this horse over a jump? Well, he has schooled, but not for, not for some time. But <laughs> I'm not sure my nerves would take that just at the moment. But um, look, while, while he, he, he's. he's He's competitive in these races. I think there's no point going jumping with him at the moment. So you, the ownership aren't tempted at all? Uh, I don't think so. They'd probably be as nervous as I am. <laughs> and as far as the, the jumpers coming in now, uh, Alan, how, how many are you looking at for this, for this season? Oh, we've got, um, we've got just, um, just over about 100, I think. Um, quite an exciting day tomorrow. Now that the rain's arrived, we're, we're going to get on the grass and... Um, the chasers are going to have their first school of the season. So I'm looking forward to that. We've got a lot of novices that haven't seen a fence yet. So um, it'll be a bit of excitement tomorrow morning. And when are the first big runners likely to come out? 
Um, I've got one or two that will go to Chepstow um, at the weekend, but I was I thought probably in another sort of fortnight or so we'll, we'll see a lot more. Um, we've run two what I would call proper winter horses so far, and they both won, so I think they're quite forward. Um, but I just would say it would be a good day tomorrow to actually get the, get the chasers off the ground. I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by a man who has uh, given much or all of his life to the sport of horse racing through a variety of different roles. Many of you will be familiar with him from his um, role as the press officer at Aintree Racecourse, where he has presided over some of the most glorious and uh, inglorious moments that that racecourse has uh, produced, including victory in his own colours for Earth Summit in 1998 in ground probably not dissimilar to what we've got at the Bois de Boulogne this afternoon in Paris Longchamp. He's also however um, contributed to horse racing in many more significant ways as the head trustee of the Peter O'Sullivan Trust which has raised so much money for so many important charities down the years and as the eight-year chair of the Professional Jockeys Association uh, a post he only relinquished last year. He is of course Nigel Payne MBE. Nigel welcome to the show. Thank you Nick. And I've probably missed out a whole um, a whole list of other uh, important jobs that you've done in in the sport as well. But um, where did the where did the desire to sort of give a life to the sport come from in the first place? Well, I, I was uh, working in a, as a solicitor in Worthing, or at least a solicitor's clerk, and I didn't earn any money in those days. So I went used to go across to the local bookies and chalk up the results, and I got a to get a few quid, and I got um, got hooked on the sport, and. Um, after one or two sort of strange little jobs, I applied for a job at Lab Brooks in uh, 1973. And fun enough, that's when I first met my dear and old friend Mike Dillon, and we're still very close friends, and he was there then. So it started there, really. And uh, So what did you do for Lab Brooks? To, to well, I started what? off as a sort of advertising manager. So I was putting ads in the then Sporting Life, because it wasn't the Racing Post, and the Chronicle, which you'll remember. Um, Nigel, I, I don't remember the sorry, Chronicle. Sorry, so, uh, <laughs> well, no, sorry, but I do remember the Sporting Life very yes, well. I it, yes. Anyway, so I was doing that, and then um, uh, Mr. Steen, as you remember, Cyril Steen, Cyril Steen, uh, the chairman of Ladbrokes, uh, put together a team to go up to Aintree in 1975, six, when the Grand National was sort of teetering. Mm. And Labrooks took out a, a seven-year management agreement, and Mike and I worked up on that. Just for those who, who don't remember, just how close was, was Aintree and the Grand National to oblivion in the, in the mid-70s? Oh, it was massively close. I mean, the gentleman who, who bought it from Mrs. Topham, who was the previous owner, was a chap called Bill Davis. He, he always used to remind me of James Robertson Justice, with the great long black brown beard. And he only bought it for one thing, because being an urban track, he bought it to build houses, and uh, there was no way he was going to get planning permission. Indeed, he didn't, but it was very close, and, and indeed it came close again in the 80s when the then Jockey Club put together a consortium, a charitable consortium to save it, and that's when Seagram stepped in in, 19, in the 82, 83 time. So, honestly, Nick, twice. It was very, very close. And, and Mike Dillon has often said that yeah, Red Rum was a, a huge part of of saving the Grand National. Is that something that, that you would agree with? I would. I mean, Mike Dillon himself um, got very friendly with Ginger. Mike's a great one for finding the best age to go forward. And he also uh, got very close to Liverpool Football Club. So, And they, uh, not long after that, had won the Champions League 
as it was then, European Cup, I think it was called. And um, so we had Red Rum, yeah, Red Rum certainly, 1976, and there, you know, the, the whole aura of a three-time winner definitely was a very, very big part. Mike's quite right about that. In saving the race, but as you so say, it was in, in jeopardy for much of the 80s yeah. as well. How different an experience was it then to what it is now? In some ways, it was... I mean, obviously, the facilities are far better now. And obviously, the welfare side is far better now. The fences, whilst no smaller, are safer. Um, I think it is a much better and a much more spectacular race, even because the, even though people say, oh, well, the fences are smaller, they're not actually smaller, but they are safer. Uh, they've got, they haven't got those wooden cores. I, and, of course, all the facilities now are magnificent, but, you know, we, one must always remember that the Aintree, Aintree is very much a sort of family affair, in my view. People have been associated with the Grand National love Aintree like I do, uh, and I know you're involved with it, and uh, it's just uh, something I'm very, very, still very passionate about, and I, and I went last, this last one, oh, okay, it's behind closed doors, but it's still going with the same buzz, and of course, what a result. <laughs> and of course, you've had your own piece of Aintree magic with, with well, Earth Summit winning in the, in the colours of your, of your partnership in, in that 1998. Was, that was amazing, I mean, because it was so funny, because I'll tell you a little story. I mean, it was, it was very tragic in many ways because you remember a horse called One Man. I do. Which was owned by John Hales. And he was tragically killed mm. in the, uh, the, the Friday. I think, yes, that that's year. right. And um, John left the track. And Charles Barnett said to me, where are your chaps having, watching the race, your syndicate? And I said, well, from the steps, you know, like anybody else. He said, there was a box going. Food and drink, anything you like, all paid for, use it. So my syndicate used a box now known as the Earth Summit box in the Princess Royal Stand, so it was absolutely lovely. But my role after races are over, as you know, is to look after the winning connections. So Charlie Barnett said, you're dismissed from duty, look after yourself, which I did. <laughs> and for you, having been so closely associated with the race course for so many years up to this point, could you quite believe what was happening? No. Absolutely not. I mean, when you consider we paid 5800 5, for Earth Summit, uh, and he was a store horse with Michael Scudamore, um, to think that that little fella, having won the Scottish and Welsh Nationals prior to that, could do what he did is totally unbelievable, particularly as he'd broken down very badly at Haydock about three years before. But, you know, Nigel's a great trainer, as you know, and he's a great, he's had two national winners, and Archap and Bindery. So, oh no, it's just, I still can't believe it, Nick. It's one of those sort of things that happens, and I'm watching it there, it's just, oh, Carlo Wellen, he's the second, second one, which he got on, by, you know, because he got party politics. <coughs> and Tom Jenks was due to ride. Uh, broke summit. his leg. Yeah. Mm great day. As I said, you, you presided over some sort of pretty controversial scenes at Aintree as well, none, mm. none more so than 1993, the, oh, the, the void race. I mean, even, even mentioning that, I can see, sort of bringing you out in a, in a mm. cold sweat. It was a terrible, terrible time because it was racing, the racing made that mistake. It wasn't sort of, uh, we, we, we weren't, 
particular starting mechanism at that time wasn't that wasn't right, and it, and it, it was sagging in the in, in the rain, and it was a terrible day. We'd had a, an animal rights demonstration in front of the first, or behind the first fence, and everything seemed to me to be going wrong. And then we had the dreadful, I mean, probably the first start, probably could have got away with it, you know. But the second one with the poor old Richard Dunwoody being garroted by the starting tape. And it, and, and it was what it was, the problem was we didn't know what to do. There was no rule in racing. Half the horses had gone half the way round, and six horses had completed the whole trip. And the rest hadn't gone anywhere. So you couldn't rerun the race. There wasn't a rule in race. There is now. Uh, you can restart the race at various points, as you know. But then there wasn't. So we were in complete disarray. And um, <laughs> being a sort of, what I think, a good PR man, I, I chivied Charles Barnett and Peter Darsby off the race course. And then the worst thing that could have happened was Dave... Was Gould. that a good decision, do you think? Uh, well, I, I think so, because... I've always believed that if you, if you get rid of your top men, if they say something, they can never go back on it. But if a, if a sort of PR man says something, <laughs> look at that, terrible. If a PR man says something, at least you can say, well, he wasn't qualified to say that. We'll get rid of. It. You know what I mean? It's a sort of a lower down the line responsibility. So w what are you saying? Is you were, you were sort of throwing yourself in front of the bus to try and protect the senior management? Well, I'm not sure that I thought of it that way at the time. But that was just the automatic thing that I thought I should do. And of course, as it turned out, I had to go on the nine o'clock news, which was quite the most frightening experience of my whole life. It was in one of those situations where I was standing in a wet jockey's car park, watching myself on a screen, and I could see the newscaster reader on the other side, and uh, it was terrifying. But I still had my Martel jacket on. It's good, good lad for the sponsors. How soon into this? Day Barkle, did you know that it was a goner? Did you know that the race was effectively effectively over for that year? Oh, not till the, probably the Sunday. Really? Yeah, because we couldn't rerun it, but whether we could rerun it later mm. was another fact. But, but how soon did you know that it was going to be a void race? Because I always think it was oh. one of Peter O'Sullivan's greatest moments of commentary. The fact that he knew mm. so early on and was calling it for the, for the viewer. He was calling, he nailed it straight away, this cannot be a horse race. You're absolutely right, but the authorities didn't know. Peter knew. Yeah. Um, and if you remember, Des Lynham, who was doing the presentation, was desperately trying to get some news. And in fact, Mike himself, Dylan, came on and said, bets are off, you know, there's a void race, nobody's money will, everybody be funded their money, which was a relief to a lot of people. But I, I reckon, yeah, I reckon on Sunday we'd, we'd, we'd examined all the options with Weatherbeers and so on and so forth as to whether the race could be reopened and it was decided that this was a year that wasn't to be. And of course, I did feel very, very sorry for poor Jenny and Jenny Pittman and, mm. and Ashenes. And she was mortified, as you can understand. But it just couldn't be, you know, that was it. It was a terrible, terrible day. We had a press conference on the Monday. Peter Darsbury brought up Christopher Soames to help us. And he didn't help us at all because all he said was no comment all the time, no comment, no comment. But it, anyway, it was not a nice day. But '97 was different. This '97 was the was the bomb scare. Yeah. It was a, an IRA bomb threat, mm -hmm. and the race was run on the Monday evening. Yep, that was that was 
much different because in that circumstance, I felt that we had acted as well as we could. I mean, once the, once the bomb warning or bomb threat, which was had a coded warning, had been ratified by the police, they take over. And that's the end of it, you have no choice. And they didn't let us back until the Monday lunchtime. They were satisfied, there was no bomb. In fact, there never was a bomb at all, but they didn't know that. And we ran the race on the Monday and, and it was a magnificent piece of organization by Weatherbeers, by everybody involved that we got the race on because it had an amazing audience figure because it was mm. five o'clock on, on a Monday evening. Monday evening and we let everybody in free with a 10,000 crowd but nobody had to pay anything which was the quite right thing to do. And I just felt that, that racing had performed well there. And Aintree Management, Charles Barnett and so on, Ian Renton was there at the time. They all did a magnificent job. Uh, Aintree's such an unusual place, as you say, and uh, has had such a, an extraordinary history. As somebody who, who has got to be the sort of public relations face mm. of the race course, is there part of you that just has to take one step back and realize that the place is bigger than, than you or your team will, will ever be? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it, it's just, it's obviously part of me now in the sense that I, I think of it a lot and I always have done. But yes, it, it, it is. I mean, this is, in my view, one of the great races of the world. And it's, a, it's an institution. And do, do you think it's safe, Nigel? The Grand National? Mm. What, safe what, for the horses or safe? No, do you think, it, do you think its future is, oh, yes. is secure? I do. I definitely do. Because, it ha as you know, it has worldwide viewing. Um, it's shown, I don't know if it's still shown, but it used to be shown, you'd know this better than me in America. It's shown in a lot of countries all over the world. I think it's safe, and I think it's safe also because Aintree take welfare so incredibly seriously. And, you know, we were the first course to introduce the washdown areas. And we have, as I said earlier, amended the fences so that instead of having great big thick wooden cores, they're easy fix, which is a sort of flexible uh, nylon type material. I, I think it's safe both in terms of horse welfare and in terms of the racing calendar and the world's racing scene. My next guest today is quite simply the busiest jockey in the weighing room. Not only is the busiest routinely riding over 1,500 horses a year, uh, he's also one of the most successful. This is the 10th consecutive year that he's passed 100 winners, and he's been champion all-weather jockey on no fewer than six occasions. He is, of course, Luke Morris, fresh from Group 1 success in Germany with Alpinista. Luke, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. How are you? Okay. Um, I'm very good, and it's great to have you, particularly here off the back of riding a filly to two Group 1 races for your, your boss, Sir Mark Prescott, in, in Germany. How much pleasure has that given you this year? Yeah, it's been fantastic, and um, you're always striving to ride winners at the top level. So um, it's four years since Marsha won in Umfort, so um, it was almost feeling like a lifetime ago uh, riding a winner at that level. I mentioned your extraordinary industry. Is this something that's come about because you set out to ride as many horses as possible, or is it sort of just evolved in that way? Um, I think it's something that, uh, growing up... Um, 
I was always very competitive and wanted to do well and wanted to succeed. So, um, you know, riding as many winners as you can. Uh, hopefully you're, you're boating, you're hoping it will uh, open doors and open better horses. So, um, they are, you know, I've always had a good work ethic and wanted to succeed. But I almost sort of presented it as though it was a lifestyle choice. And I was trying to get at whether it was really a lifestyle choice or whether you kind of found yourself on this treadmill and now you can't get off it. Um, Probably a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, when you're riding winners, you, you kind of don't want to get off that wave of um, of, of riding winners and, and doing well. So uh, there's almost a, uh, a certain fear of failure inside of you where you don't want to give those winners away and you're just striving to keep succeeding almost. And I mentioned that you know, you've come here off the back of riding a couple of Group 1 winners and, and not your first either, Gilt Edge Girl and Marsha and others. Um, but for you, is there, a, is there an equivalence to all these winners? Do they all come alike to you? Or do the, do the bigger ones still stand out? Um, the bigger one says there's no feeling like it. And um, when, when Alpinista won in um, Hopcarson a few weeks back, it was, uh, it was almost that, that feeling was back again where um, when you ride a winner at that level, it, it really does give you a, a huge buzz. Whereas obviously it's great riding winners, but... Um, Riding your Monday to Friday winners, it's almost, I feel like it's your job and, you know, I should be riding lots of winners and, you know, you, you keep working hard to, to gain the top winners. This is Alpinista. And prior to this, she'd beaten one of today's art candidates, Torquato Tasso, who they're talking up a little bit in Germany. Would she have looked out of place in this afternoon's race, do you think? Uh, I, I think um, if she'd have handled the ground, she'd have ran a solid race. Um, Interesting, the, uh, the assistant trainer, William Butler, was, was very keen to, uh, to the boss to supplement, but, uh, you know, Mr. Rousing and uh, Sir Mark, had, um, they had a plan in place, and, um, like I say, she went and won in Cologne last Sunday, so it was, it was clearly the right choice. I'll, I'll come back to, to riding for Sir Mark in, in a bit, but I, I wanted to rewind right back to when you're five, six, seven, you moved to Newmarket, and... You were you were inspired very much by your uncle, weren't you, Jason Tate? Yeah, um, I always remember he won the um, he won the Royal Hunt Cup on a horse of James Hughes's refused to lose, a good few years back, and um, I remember seeing that and thought this re this really is for me. By then, I'd I'd never actually touched or seen a racehorse, but um, I kind of knew then that this is for me, and it was interesting that when I used to go to school every day, I used to have to walk. Um, parallel to the horse walk and I see the horse every day and uh, I kind of knew then that um, it was a path I wanted to follow if, um, if, if I was good enough. Uh, how were you at school? I was academically fine, got all my GCSEs, sort of A's and B's, but uh, absolutely despised going to school and um, from the age of 12 or 13 I used to get on my BMX and uh, ride out one lot for Michael Bell before school and then look after my three, four horses of an evening. Despise is quite a quite a strong word. <laughs> was it was it really that hateful? Um, it probably wasn't that hateful, but um, my mind was elsewhere, and um, it was almost just counting down the days till till I left, and I could hopefully ride in a race. What kind of man was Michael Bell to ride for? Um, he was very good, and probably looking back, I didn't appreciate at the time everything he did for me because I was as a young jockey probably a lot like everyone else who's been in a situation you want to run before you can walk and you know I wasn't ready to be probably getting as many rides as I was at the time and he stopped me from riding through the winters on the all weather just to kind of prolong my claim 
and gain experience and and make the necessary improvement. And um, did, was that frustrating at the time? At the time, I, I really couldn't understand it, and you know, I felt like, well, you know, what's he doing to me? But um, looking back, it was the best thing, best thing that probably happened for me in my career. And um, I was able to spend a winter with Gay Wall's house, which was a fantastic experience, and a winter with Ben Cecil in California. So. Um, it probably made me the person and the rider I am today. And say, looking back, I can't thank him enough, really. You're the 432nd guest to have spent time with Gay Waterhouse in Australia, I think, who sat, who sat in that chair. She's a, a quite amazing influence on so many people from so many walks of life and, and sections of the industry. What did you learn there? Um, it was a really hard school of graft. And, um, you know, it was, it was eye-opening at the time because I was riding probably only 20 horse a morning, but um, you know, I was like to have a few rides for her and um, and I learned so much and rode some, some lovely horses at the time as well. Um, horses like Dance Hero, Bentley's Biscuit, um, some proper horses. What, what was she like to, to ride in a race for? What were the sort of... Um, she was fairly straightforward to ride for as long as you did, uh, you did what you were told. And um, <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was a great experience being out there and um, Say she was she she was a tough woman, but she was fair. Uh, is that reflected in your in your current boss, Sir Mark Prescott? Tough but fair. Uh, exactly, yeah. He's he's very meticulous, and um, I always think with Sir Mark, nothing's left to chance. Everything's, you know, it's done properly, and you know, the, the, if we get the result, it's through doing everything the right way. So how did it how did it start, you and Sir Mark? Um, I, I felt that everything kind of went in terms of I lost my claim. I rode a, a good bit for Clive Cox when I lost my claim. Lucky enough to ride him a Group One winner, and um, kind of that path was just starting to really sort of finish. And um, I ended up riding a few horses for Smart. Did that? Did that just reach its natural conclusion? You and you and Clive. Yeah, I rode um, plenty of listed winners, a few Group winners. Luckily enough, Gilt Edge Girl, you know, just out of my claim, and um, just. Um, it kind of reached that natural conclusion, really, where possibly the horses weren't running that well at the time, and um, and I I felt that 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 door was starting to close, really. And luckily enough, at the time, um, I started getting a few rides for Sir Mark through the winter when um, I think Seb Sanders was out injured and rode a couple of winners. And um, the following season, he asked me to come in and start riding work and just see how the relationship developed. And um, luckily, it worked well. And um, I think. Uh, one of my first rides from that year was a filly called uh, Clinical and the Princess Elizabeth Oaks Day, and she won. She won the Group Three, so it kind of it almost just took the pressure off that season, and um, it made me kind of fit into the role quite naturally. So, how different? How different is it to ride for Sir Mark compared to any other trainer? Um, I enjoy it because uh, you know I spend plenty, plenty of time riding work in the mornings there, and you get to know the horses, and also you get to know the the pedigrees have got a lot of, you know, influential owner breeders, Mr. Housing, Chivley Park, Dempford Stud, and you kind of get to know the fit of what each horse's career is going to progress to, and um, and how and how they'll, you know, how they'll be campaigned. So it's it's nice because you you almost feel part of the team, and you almost feel part of that horse's career. So you look you're looking at it in the round as well as just I need X many winners next week. You enjoy the development of, of horses. Yeah, exactly. Because um, you know there are some horses that uh, get a lot of uh, big backward um, two-year-olds where we know that um, I'm sure this horse is going to come good and he's going to he's going to reward us. So um, 
you look after them accordingly and um you know it's it's nice to see when they reward you and a year down the line they're rated fifty pound higher and you've uh, got six or seven winners out of them and they're they're at black type level. So it's it's lovely to follow those horses' careers and um be part of them. Now here's an interesting here's an interesting point to, to touch on. Well you've touched on it and I'll expand on it. So you have plenty of people watching now be saying, Oh yeah, well we know how you do it. You get a big backward two year old, nice pedigree. It, you have three quiet runs as a two-year-old over a trip that it's got no chance of winning over, and then bingo, you get a rating of 54, and out you come and win six races the next year. Now, I've always said, if it was that easy, everybody would be able to do it, but they're not able to do it. So why is Sir Mark Prescott so good at developing a horse's career like that? Um, I think like these horses, they're running over as far as they can at the time. You know, their two-year-olds are running over a you know, mile, mile and a quarter, whatever seven furlongs at the time when the seven furlong race are out so they're, they're running as far as they can at the time but like I say he, he's able to um, develop the horses where you know he'll, he'll conjure them more improvement out as a three-year-old once they get stronger they develop and um, they're, they're stepping up and trip gradually and learning on the job so um, it's, it's lovely to see these horses improve and um, it's great when the owners and breeders are able to get black type from these horses. But it's a delicate balance, isn't it, between making sure you're bringing them on quietly on the on the race course and trying to stay one step ahead of the handicapper. On the other hand, a lot of horses, you, you stick three quick runs into them and they fall apart on you and you've got no horse left at the end of it. Yeah, like I say, it's, um, it's as much about training their minds as it is training them physically, but um, I should say Sir Mark's um, a, master, a master at doing it. It strikes me you like that level of detail. You like things to be precise, is that right? Um, yeah, like I say, you learn with Smark, everything's meticulous and as I said before, nothing's left to chance and um, even when we go through the races, you know, we could be going through the 920 at Wolverhampton and it's um, it's done the same detail as Billy running a Group 1 or etc. So um, it's nice to be to be on the ball and um, I've learned since riding for Smart that, you know, you have to really be precise and I study all my races the night before on the iPad, do a lot of video form, just so that um, you know you've, you've you've got to be on the ball in this game. And um, if you can be one step ahead of your competitors, it gives you a slight edge. And would would he be someone who accepts that you can make a mistake, or does he find it hard if you've made a mistake? Um, I think a lot of it is we'll discuss the race and we discussed the way the best the best way to ride the race and approach it and if you do what you're told then generally you're you know you, you've done the right thing and it also leaves um since the longer I've ridden for him the more you, you've got a slight rope of your own where if you think think things aren't going right in terms of a race then you, you can improvise and do what's best for the horse. Tell me a little bit about how you've developed as a as a rider and as a jockey because nowadays somebody said to me well you know in the 80s, you could identify every jockey just by looking at the screen, and you can't now. They all kind of look quite similar the way they ride. You have a very distinctive style. Anyone can spot Luke Morris in a in a race. It's much more dynamic and can be look a lot more urgent. Is that something that that you develop consciously? Um, I don't know really. It's um, <laughs> I, I guess it's something that it, it feels it feels to me more comfortable, and um, I think. Naturally, I've I've developed tactically a lot better since riding for Smart because there are there's much more emphasis on how the race is going to be run, etc. But I generally am someone that you know I'm, I'm I'm quite busy in a race and but I think it suits me and 
I'm able to conjure as much of, out of the horse as I can. And, and sort of when people are, are sort of slightly disobliging about that style, what do you what do you say to them? Because they say, "Oh, he looks really sort of untidy and ungainly." Um, I think that um, it gets the best out of the horse, and um, like I say, I'd like to think that by riding winners at the top level and riding, you know, I think it's ten, ten years of ten centuries consecutively. Um, I think it proves that um, it's certainly effective. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't want to change what feels good to you, do you? As a sportsman, you you have to feel that that it's natural. Yeah, like saying, you know, I have done bits and pieces to try and try try and work on it, but at the same time, you when you have a certain a certain way where it feels natural, it works, and um, you kind of don't want to take that um, almost that nuance away from yourself.